Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the February twenty-third episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen Arate. You can follow us at poetsandmuses.com and on social media via Instagram, Twitter, as well as SoundCloud under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. With us today is Flipside, with whom I will be discussing his poem, "Cherry Blow Pops," and my poem, "The Disappearing Act." Before we do that, however, I'm going to go over all the poetry events taking place in the Phoenix metro area during the week of February 24th. On Monday from 6 to 8 p.m., Joy Young will be hosting the fourth of their eight-part. From page to stage, exploring spoken word workshop at the Phoenix Center for the Arts, which is at 1202 North Third Street in Phoenix. From 8 to 10 p.m., Phoenix Firebird Events will be hosting their open mic Mondays at Smooth Brew Coffee at 504 East Roosevelt Street in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic is between 7 and 7:30. On Tuesday, February twenty-fifth, from six to eight p.m., Connect and Heal will be hosting their weekly poetry writing workshop in Room One Hundred One of the Chandler Community Center, which is at one twenty-five East Commonwealth Avenue in Chandler. From six thirty to eight p.m., the Virginia G. Piper Center for Creative Writing, the Pat Tillman Veterans Center, and the Office for Veteran Military Academic Engagement will be hosting its monthly Veterans Writing Circle with Marco Pena. This will be taking place at Piper Writers House at four fifty East Tyler Mall in Tempe. For more information and to sign up, email mmcdonald at asu dot edu. Again, that's m mcdonald at asu dot edu. That's m as in Mary dot m as Mary again c d o n o u g h at asu dot edu. From six thirty to nine thirty p.m., Nocturnal the poet will be hosting his The Art of Justice open mic and art show at First Church. Which is at fourteen o seven North Second Street in Phoenix. The entrance is from the parking lot. Signing up to get on the mic starts at six p.m. on Wednesday, February twenty sixth, from five to ten p.m. Walt Richardson the second will be hosting his Walk in Wednesdays open mic night at Tempe Center for the Arts, which is at seven hundred West Rio Salado Parkway in Tempe. From five to six, youth performers will go on. From six to ten, all other performers will go on. Signing up for the first part starts at four forty-five p.m. Signing up for the second starts at five p.m. On Thursday, February twenty-seventh, from six to nine p.m., Fatso's Pizza will be hosting his weekly open mic night at thirty-one thirty-one East Thunderbird Road in Phoenix. From seven thirty p.m. We Jazz June and Marche Fister Productions will be hosting their Jazz Meets Poetry, celebrating Sun Ra. This will take place at the Nash at 110 East Roosevelt Street in Phoenix. From 8 to 11 p.m., Quentin Oni will be hosting his open mic at Jobot Coffee and Bar at 333 East Roosevelt Street in Phoenix. From 9:45 p.m., Atlas Saint Cloud will be hosting his weekly poetry writing workshop at the Welcome Diner, which is at 929 East Pierce Street in Phoenix. 
on Friday, February 28th, from 3.15 to 6.15 p.m., the Arizona Masters of Poetry will be hosting the preliminary bouts to its fourth annual Hotter Than the Sun Arizona Youth Poetry Festival. This will take place at Phoenix College at 1202 West Thomas Road in Phoenix. From 6.30 to 8 p.m., Equality Arizona will be hosting its monthly Queer Poetry Salon, this time featuring past poets and muses guest Sean Avery and Maria Whitson. This will take place at Palavra's Bilingual Bookstore at 1738 East McDowell Road in Phoenix. From 6 to 9 p.m., Local to Global Justice will launch its 19th annual forum and festival with a free event of music and spoken word with Cheetah Volcano, our past guests Wilda Bard, Robert Johnson, and La Luz de la Luna. This will take place at Phoenix Hostel and Cultural Center at 1026 North 9th Street in Phoenix. From 6.30 to 10 p.m., Sozo Coffee House would be hosting its open mic night at 1982 North Elma School Road in Chandler. From 7 to 9 p.m., Flipside will be hosting his Confession Poetry Showcase at Concierge Bistro Bar, which is at 1140 East Washington Street, Street 101 in Phoenix. On Saturday, February 29th, from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m., Sheridus Leona will be hosting the last of her spoken word, The Art of Slam Poetry Workshop at Phoenix Center for the Arts, which is at 1202 North 3rd Street in Phoenix. From 5 to 9 p.m., Arizona Masters of Poetry will be hosting the finals of its fourth annual Hotter Than the Sun Arizona Youth Poetry Festival at Phoenix College, which again is at 1202 West Thomas Road in Phoenix. On Sunday, March 1st from 12 to 8 p.m., Food Not Bombs will be hosting their displaced backyard performances at 839 South Farmer Avenue in Tempe. This event will raise funds to help the homeless. And now let us turn to our poet guest of the week, Flipside. Hi, Flipside. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Thank you. It's uh, good to be here. Yeah. You brought with you the poem Cherry Blow Pops. But before we get into that, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I was born in Las Vegas on a military base. My dad was Air Force mm -hmm. for many years. Grew up in California, Southern California, San Bernardino, which is about mm -hmm. 50 to 60 miles from LA. It's also base, isn't it? Uh, yeah, there was a base there also. That's why we moved there. My dad was still in the military when we moved there. He retired at that base, Northern mm -hmm. Air Force Base. I was there from five until about 17. I went to college mm -hmm. back in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. And then uh, a few years later, I moved back to San Bernardino to help my mother because my dad was, he had been assigned to England, a station in England. And oh. so my mom had my sister and my sister was wilding out. <laughs> <laughs> so I came back to help my mom mm. and I stayed for a few years. Then I moved to Arizona. Mm. I followed a woman. And that's how I got here. <laughs> it happens. It happens. I'm okay with that. Yeah. We're still friends. We're still good. Yeah. When you feel love, you feel pulled toward that person. So completely understandable. And I admire people who don't say, oh, I'm a man, therefore I have must do certain things. And so I admire that. 
No, I, I, I liked... Uh, first of all, I needed to get out of San Bernardino. It can be a terrible town. Mm. Now, I lived in the, on the good side of town for the latter half of my uh, existence there, but there's some pretty seedy parts of, of the city, and mm-hmm. I felt like it was time. I had an opportunity here. I had, there was a woman here that I was infatuated with, mm-hmm. so those two things together was like, God's telling me to leave. So, right, right, so right. I was, so I left. Yeah, sometimes your situation is so bad, you're like, okay, I'm, I think I'm being tested. <laughs> I, I think I'm being pushed out. You just go with it. I was wondering, how come you didn't go to uh, London with your, or all of you, go to London with your dad? Well, I was in high school at the time. Mm-hmm. I was uh, 16 years old, and my sister, who's five years younger than me, was, was 11. Mm-hmm. And my dad's idea was he moved my older two brothers around, mm-hmm. and he didn't want to do that again. I was okay with that because I had a base I had a lot of friends and, and everything that I was fond of. So, I, you know, I was just like, no, nah, I'm not trying to leave. I only, <laughs> had, I only had a year and a half left of school also. Oh, right, right. So I was just like, uh, I go out there and then I got to start all over with new people and right, right, crazy right. British accents and all that. I was just like, no. It would have been fun. It would have been, been an experience, yeah. but I don't know if I would have enjoyed it. I so. think you would have. Knowing you, I think you would have really liked it. I don't know. I'm I'm a different person than I was when I was in high school. When I was in high school, I was an athlete, but a nerdy athlete. Mm-hmm. It's great, actually. It's a good <laughs> no, combination. No, it is a good combination. But I was susceptible mm-hmm. to doing things I shouldn't be doing. <laughs> Given your confessions, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so me being uh, me being in a foreign land would not have been a good idea for me. <laughs> So. But I hear a lot of people who live on military bases would stick to the military base much of the time anyway. That's true. It's like a family. The military bases mm-hmm. usually stick together. The families stick together. I had been on other military bases. My sister was actually born in Okinawa, Japan mm-hmm. on, a, on an Air Force base. So I, we had flown around. I was in New Jersey at McGuire Air Force Base for a little mm-hmm. bit. But most of the time, I'd rather be in the States because it has a different feel. Right, it does. It does. So going back to poetry, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into poetry? I started writing poetry when I was very, very young. I was about eight. Mm. And I started writing poetry because it made my mother smile. Mm -hmm. And that was pretty much it. I realized that turning a phrase in a a particular way could make my mom smile. And so Mm -hmm. I continued to do that. And then as I got a little older, I ran into girls and realized I could turn a phrase a different way and make them smile. <laughs> so that's how that's how uh, I got involved in poetry. And then my mom always pushed us to do things. So, you know, in the church, we didn't up on stage doing plays and oratorical contests and all these things. So I was very comfortable with the microphone, even mm-hmm. when I was very young. Right. So it was, a, it was not a stretch for me. So it was just like, oh, yeah, I'll just... I'll just go on stage. I can do this. I've done right, this all right, my right. life. So so it was, it was a very natural transition. Right. right. So. Was there an incident in particular when you were at eight that made you say, well, poetry instead of prose? Um, no. The first poem I ever wrote for my mom was about a flower. Hmm. This is how I thought back then. Mm-hmm. I'll go pick a flower from one of the neighbor's houses <laughs> and then write, a poem to it and mm-hmm. give the poem and the flower to my mother. 
So I had a poem about sunflowers, then I had a poem about birds of paradise, which I actually bought. Mm-hmm. Then I then I had a, a poem about roses, I had a poem about carnations. So it was a whole series. If I, mm-hmm. if I could find that series, I would print it. It was terrible oh, yeah. poems, but uh, <laughs> they were terrible. I was eight, nine, no. ten years old. But they were my beginning, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And my mom had them for a long time, but before she passed, I never asked where she put it, so I don't mm-hmm. know where they are, mm-hmm. whether she still has them or not. Yeah. Had them before. So I don't know. That was 40 years ago, if you think about that. So, yeah, yeah so that's, you know, when I realized that writing about the flowers mm-hmm. and how they made me feel mm-hmm. would make her feel good, mm-hmm. that's how I got to that right. so I just kept writing and as you know as time goes on you get better right yeah. you, you know you're like oh I should use this word instead of that word mm-hmm. so that's pretty much how it came to be cool. so I've always loved that that was my beginning and it wasn't about me it wasn't about school or anything right. like that it was just you know my mom thought it was cool and when you're a middle child mm-hmm. I'm, the, I'm the third of four mm-hmm. so when you're a middle child you find ways to you know try to find ways to you know, stand out. Right, right. That was my way to stand out with my mother was to write. Mm-hmm. And so even to this day, I'm the only artist in my family. Oh, wow. That's wonderful. Yeah. In terms of improving yourself, your craft, did you, like, get library books or how did you, besides just repeated actions? Watching others, to be honest. There was a time from the time I was about 18 until I was, I don't know, my mid-20s, mm-hmm. where I didn't write a whole lot. Mm-hmm. I didn't write a whole lot of um, poetry because I'm a journalist by trade, so I was already writing a lot. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so ah. so I was already writing a lot, so right. I didn't really write for fun in mm-hmm. those years. And then uh, when I moved here, or right before I moved here, I found an open mic. Mm. And I saw people doing it on stage. And right. I was like, what? You can do this on stage? Right, right. So I was just like, okay, I'm in. So then some of the when I moved here, some of the local people took me under their wing. Mm-hmm. Unintentionally, they mm-hmm. just did. Divine was one of the first. Right. HB was one of the first. HB? HB? Know. You don't know HB? I don't think so. Uh, he's going to be... He's gonna oh, be, home base. Home, home base, base, yeah. Yeah. I, so, I keep missing his events. I keep seeing them, but never. Yeah, so so he was one of the people that, that took me under his wing. Mm-hmm. And I started to learn from them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Wisdom was one of those people as well. Mm-hmm. So th- that's the reason why in upcoming months, all of those people will be featured. Right, right, right. Because my features are kind of a journey mm-hmm. of my life to poetry. So all these people that will be featured, well, not all of them, but most of them I've known for 10 15, 20 years. Okay. Well, since you talked about that, can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I know, but the okay. audience I do a, an open mic called Confessions. Mm-hmm. On the second Friday of every month, it is a true open mic. Anyone that comes down gets on the microphone if mm-hmm. they wish. They can say whatever they want. We're in a bar. So right. it, it's a bar slash restaurant called Concierge mm-hmm. downtown. And so you can say whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And I try not to get in the way of that. Mm -hmm. And then on the fourth Friday of every month is a feature showcase Mm -hmm. where we have four artists and all they do is do their poetry. Mm -hmm. I don't even perform on those nights unless there's some sort of lull. If there's no lull, there's no reason for me to perform. Mm -hmm. These people are good. Right, yeah. The idea is... I get to pay homage to those who have helped me mm-hmm. 
and have been there for me, mm-hmm. or just people that I truly respect in the, mm-hmm. in the craft. I get to pay homage to them, and then on the second Friday, I get to find the next one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's the idea. I started on second week in January. Mm-hmm. It's fun. I, yeah. I'm having a blast. I, I know you were there yeah, at both, at both events. It. As far as the the event goes, it's it's a five dollar charge to get in, mm-hmm. and that just basically pays for the night. I don't yeah. I don't really worry about making money. It's mm-hmm. not important to me. Mm-hmm. I pay the features. Mm-hmm. Each one of the features uh, receives money, so I as they should. Right, and so the money that I take in goes to them. Right. If there's extra money, then yeah, I'll keep some of it. But mostly, it's just about paying them and giving everyone the opportunity to see these artists right. because they're good artists who have, you know, years of of craft mm-hmm. under mm-hmm. their belt, and they just do what they feel is best for the audience. A lot of artists can't necessarily read the audience mm-hmm. and be like, oh, I should do this right now, but. These people have been doing this for many years. Like right. Divine, I had Divine uh, in the first show. Divine, uh, Mystic Blue, uh, Leah Marche, and Raquel McKenzie. Those four artists have more than 60 years of poetry. And, and stage. And, and, and stage presence. So that makes it easy. So I don't have to do anything. I just say, okay, you're next. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then introduce them, and then they go do their thing. Right. And that makes my job easier because then I don't have to lift the crowd up. No, right. they, they know right. what they're doing, so I don't have to do that. So yeah. it's an enjoyable night for me. It is. It, it was really fun, and I look forward to the other ones coming up. And uh, also, I think you're the only one who's doing this in the evening, cater to um, a particular community, whereas the other two open mics, I know that's in the evenings, they're open mics, so they're all kinds, all genres, which is nice in a way because it's got a lot of variety and it appeals to a wider range of people. At the same time, I like seeing events that are devoted to literary arts as well. This is a poetry event. Yeah. It's not a variety show. Right, right. It's not a dancing, singing, you know, musicianship. If you want that, you can go to Infuse Open Mic, which I also mm-hmm. I also am part of, and that's on the second Sunday of every month. Right, which so, I go to all the time, and, and that's and you how do we go know to, each other. And you do go to that, <laughs> and that's how we met. And and that's the reason why I wanted this to be different. Right. You know, because people who want to do open mic in that variety type style, mm-hmm. there are other places to do that. Yeah, there And I'm a poet, mm-hmm. so I want a poet open mic, mm-hmm. you know, and so this gave me the opportunity, I have to say this, Trishina Bazaar and Shakir M, I'll just say M because his name is really long, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but um, they came to me with this idea, mm-hmm. they came to me with the idea of putting on an, a poetry open mic, mm-hmm. and I said, let me figure out what I can do with it that mm-hmm. isn't being done already, and right. then I'll be in. Right. And so me and Shakir talked for a couple of days. Trish was like, he's the perfect guy to do it. That's what she told him. (laughs) He's the perfect guy to do it. He knows everyone. He's charismatic. He's fun, blah, 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 blah. And I was was like, some of those things are true. (laughs) <laughs> but uh no, so uh, those things are true as far so, as i know you so so i said i said i appreciate that let me let me work it out and so when i started calling people mm-hmm. my friends and saying oh this is what i'm thinking about doing they were mm-hmm. like i'm in when do you want me to be there mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. what day do you want me to you know show up 
And so once I started getting that response from my friends, it was pretty much a done deal. I was like, okay, I'm in. Cool. I have features set up until December already. That's great. That's awesome. Yes. Wow. As a matter of fact, I have some out-of-town features who called me. Right. Uh, so I was just like, um, how do you hear about this? Oh, we saw it on Facebook. I'm in. When do you, When can I be down? I was like, okay, I got you down for such and such. <laughs> so we're going to have some features from uh, Chicago. One is from, he's from Cleveland, but he lives in L.A. now. Mm-hmm. I have another one who's from Baltimore who now lives in L.A. Mm-hmm. So we, we're going to have features from all across the country. And we got a, one coming from Georgia, I'll say. Oh, also, nice. So. nice. Yeah, so. Yeah. And Mystic Blue is from uh, Minnesota. Well, yeah, yeah, Minnesota originally, but yes. she lives here now. Yes. Because yeah. that's a pretty far. Yeah, she Mystic Blue is is awesome. I've known her for uh, many years. She used to be in our in our plays. I'm a member of a group called Black Poet Ventures. We oh, started in yeah we started in 2005. We would put on what we call poetic ductions, nice. which are actual plays written from poetry. So yeah. it's so it's basically Shakespeare but next level. Right. Yeah. Leah told me a little bit about that because I I knew she was involved, but I wasn't sure who else is. Yes, there there are four of us: yeah. Leah Marche, me, King Savior, and Ism Dark. We're we're the four people of Blackfoot Ventures, and yeah. and we did ten years, a solid ten years of poetic deductions before we just kind of took a hiatus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in that process. We have worked with about 250 different artists, musicians, oh, wow. uh, singers, dancers, poets, actors. There is an incredibly large pool of artistic talent here. I am really, really happy to see it. There is a lot of talent here. Yeah. When people say that there's no real culture here, it's because they're not looking. Yeah, yeah. Because, Trevor Noah did that. I dragged him yeah. for it. Because 200, <laughs> 250 artists that we've worked with. Mm-hmm. You know, so so you realize that's that's a lot of people doing yeah. a lot of different things. Absolutely. And they don't just disappear. They're all here. Right. You know right. what I mean? I mean, there's maybe, I'd say out of the 250 we worked with, maybe 20 are gone. Right. So there's right. still more than 200 of them yeah. still here. Yeah. I, I always find new faces whenever I go to the open mic, and those are just emergent voices. And we're not talking about artists who are, like, practicing artists which i think you know more of i i know many of them yeah and and some of them work in schools as i do and some of them are just artists out there mm-hmm. putting out good work mm-hmm. and creating a proving ground for others to come mm-hmm. you know so and, and that's the key the key is to continue the keep the continuum going mm-hmm. because the one thing we don't want to do is stop progress right Right. So that's that's the key to us. So yeah. at least that's for that's for for Blackfoot Ventures. That's what we always believe. Yeah, and and if you don't provide the venue, then people are going to go elsewhere to to search for it. So it's good that you are part of the network that's providing outlets for artists yes. here. So since it is a poetry podcast, and I do want to talk about your poem, can you please read it for us? Oh sure, okay. This is called uh, Cherry Blow Pops. It is a true story. Mm. It's a true story, which makes it uh, all the more scary. (laughs) So, I've been in love with her since the third grade. And every day we spend apart is like a dream delayed. I remember the first time I met her by the seesaw. I put sand in her hair. She knocked me to the ground. And ever since day, I always wanted to be around her. I take long walks with her. 
carry library books for her, get to school an hour early just to see her. Her name was Sherry, and I adored her like I do my favorite candy. Caramel-colored eyes made me long to be her Willy Wonka. Skin of a Hershey chocolate hue made me want to kiss and lick her face. You see, I had a sweet tooth for her, and even a dentist couldn't cure it. But just after my 12th birthday, her mother told me they were moving away. I was crushed, devastated. It all seemed so sudden. I still remember the last walk we ever took together. We went to the corner store. I got a pack of now laters and a root beer. She got a Coke and a cherry blow pop. And I walked her home and kissed her on the cheek. It was sweet. Reminiscing on that day still takes me back to my childhood. Sharing root beer floats and apple jolly ranchers, thrifty's ice cream and bubblicious gum. But in my mind, she always smells like cherry blow pops. Little did I know at night Sherry was forced to blow pops. Painfully innocent, her innocence became her pain. She would later hurt anyone who dared to love her, rub her, or even hug her too tight. It just ain't fair that that bastard that claimed to love her had extinguished her light. I loved her. And even if I wasn't truly in love with her in the third grade, doesn't mean that I wouldn't be. You see, statistics show that one out of every three girls is molested before the age of 18, so you may not know her as Sherry, but you know her. She may be your sister's best friend or the girl next door, the girl at the corner store with the crooked smile, or maybe that cousin you don't know all that well, but you know her. Now that you do, let's start making some changes. Let's stop creating impressions that lead to depression. Stop protecting the criminals, claiming that the damage is minimal. No excuses for these abuses. No alibis for priests, pastors, coaches, and rabbis. We can no longer accept unacceptable behavior even if it comes from someone who claims to be your savior. Instead, we need to save her. In my mind, she always smells like cherry blow pops. I just wish that all of her pain would stop. Thank you. You're welcome. That is a very difficult poem because it is real. It is Mm -hmm. a true story. Mm -hmm. This is a person I actually knew and was very fond of. Mm. And I did not know why she left Mm. or why she was leaving. And her mother never told me. Mm -hmm. And then I saw her on Facebook years later. Mm -hmm. And then she got in touch with me Mm. and told me the story. Mm. And that's how I found out. And that's how I wrote the poem. And I was just, I was really, really hurt when I found out. Right. So the pain is real. Mm-hmm. And it is unfortunately not an uncommon story. Yeah. And <clears> you <throat> mentioned the statistics. I, I really appreciate you putting that in the poem as well so people can put it into perspective. Yeah, that was important. I actually looked it up mm-hmm. and did research when I found out. Because when I decided that I was going to write the poem, mm-hmm. I was taken aback by the research. Mm. I was like, oh, this can't be that common. And then when I saw the research, I was like, wow. And now I have a daughter who's about to be six, and I'm always on the lookout now. I'm just like, Hawkeye. Just like, you know, uh, it hit home, because I wrote this poem before Mm -hmm. her, 
but uh, it really hit home when, when she was born. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, it, it's frustrating because, especially given what's going on over the past few years with Me Too and, like, revelations of how prevalent all of this sexual... Um, Misconduct. Yeah, uh, is. And, and how little our legal systems are protecting, uh, like, half of the population... Um, yeah, part of it is is the legal system's fault, but mm-hmm. part of it part of it is the fear of the victims. Yeah. Because if the victims aren't willing to stand up and tell, it's hard for the legal system to do anything. It's true. As somebody, and I'm not blaming I'm not blaming the victims. I'm just saying if they don't tell, how are they gonna know? Right. There is that aspect of it, and and I speaking of somebody who's a survivor myself, I can tell you that. I always go to the police because I want it on the record. Right. Because if not for me, obviously you can't take back what happened. But having it on the record means that if they do it again and they invariably, most likely, will well, do it again. Yes. Will means that somebody can reference that at some point. Right. As the evidence stacks up. Right, right. It's hard to deny it. Right. Um, that, but that one of the frustrations is the disbelief from the police. Part of the problem with this crime is obviously most likely it's not done in the open, it's not done with witnesses around, but then there are other crimes who are similar, uh, like a burglary for instance, it's not going to be done with people around, yet there's no this suspicion that's always surrounding this particular kind of crime, sexual misconduct. And that's the frustration because I can tell you I've, I've experienced a range of treatment uh, and none of them are like mentally healthy. <laughs> right. It's very difficult, not only the recounting of the experience because you go back to it, oh, I'm sure. which is so hard, difficult as it is, but also having the person the, that you're telling to, especially people that you think might help you like law enforcement keep saying, like, oh, what about this, what about that? You know, like, things that sometimes is necessary for them to ask, but is traumatizing nonetheless. So I can understand. Yeah, so that's why I can understand why people do not come forward, especially the cases we see from the Me Too movement that dates back, like, 20, 30, 50 years back, because the times have changed Although I have to say that when people who do inappropriate things, not not just assaults, but inappropriate things, says, oh, the times have changed, mm-hmm. and this behavior, my behavior, would not be seen as a problem in, in the past. And I would say, no, the majority of men from the dawn of time, the dawn of human existence, did not go around assaulting women. It's a matter of respect for personal boundaries. And that's persistent throughout history. At the same time, I have to say that the perception around how women's body, the who possesses women's body, right. is changing. And unfortunately, very slowly, not fast enough. I feel like even in current times, we're still incrementally talking about what is accepted behavior toward women's body instead of just saying, hardline saying, her body belongs to her. She has to give you consent, which is a totally right. turning it completely um, instead of this incremental thing of saying, 
oh, what about this behavior? What about right. that behavior? Which is more case by case right. by and, case. And, and trying to give someone an excuse. Yeah, exactly. And that I think that makes it difficult for people who surround the female um, loved ones in, in their lives because then the responsibility falls onto all of us rather than the system that we should be able to count on because we have a society because we, whether or not we said yes directly or not, we agreed to pay a certain amount of money in order to have a protection. Yet many communities have sort of, um, women and then women of color because unfortunately it's a it's a <laughs> hierarchy even within that and also oh absolutely yeah and you coming from uh, African American community you know this <laughs> stratification and protection that knowing absolutely. despite the fact that you're paying taxes for protection you're not getting that protection that is very true and I think that um, as a society we subscribe to a set of standards mm -hmm. and unfortunately the police don't always meet those standards yeah and it, it and it this is not about me bashing the police but it's a it's a um, it's pushing it doesn't push the envelope far enough right. for them to say you know what you you have to abide by these standards mm -hmm. or we're gonna lock you up or right. we're going to take away your freedom or we're going to uh, create some sort of system that's going to make you stay within the standards. Right. A lot of it has to do with the fact that the police stations are still male dominated. Yes. So many of the crimes that we're speaking of have probably been initiated by some of these same people. Yeah, they're... I, oh, I forget the exact statistics, but apparently police perpetrate a, a crime, sexual violence, especially toward people who are in the um, sex work industry. It's incredibly prevalent and because they are protected by the blue wall of silence, which they need to get rid of. Right. They become, a, in some way, I feel like the police have become, a, exist onto themselves. And they exist for themselves in some oh, way. Oh, that's that's true in many aspects of society. <laughs> yes. So, yes. Exactly. Not not just the sexual uh, misconduct. Yeah. But also in, in you know in criminal drug behavior, right. criminal homicides. All these things are protected by the blue shield, and it's unfortunate because what it does is it creates mistrust in the society that they're supposed to be protecting. Right. Right. And I think part of the problem is also, you know, as you said, um, police uh, precincts tend to be male dominated. At the same time, they also tend to be pulled from certain segments of population that are not part of the communities that they're policing. Yes. And that's one of the reasons why there are so many preconceived notions. And, and also the level of education from policemen that they're pulling, the population they're pulling out of, period. And there is not enough training to counter that. I agree, but I will add one thing to that. And I agree with everything you just said. But I will add that part of it is our own faults mm -hmm. as well, as, as far as the community goes, because we're not willing to be that police officer. Yeah. So if well, you go into the... Mistrust. Well, if you go into the black community and you say, okay, we're going to pay you such and such amount of dollars, which is higher than most 
jobs that you'll ever get Man. to be a police officer. They're like, man, pass. Okay, man. so I could walk into a, a, a community center right now, Boys and Girls Club, YMCA, whatever community center, mm-hmm. Salvation Army, whatever, on the south side right now where there's a gluttony of African-American kids. Mm-hmm. And I can say to them, who wants to make $50,000 a year? Every hand will go up. Mm-hmm. Everyone, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Who wants to be a police officer? All those hands will go down. Yeah. And so the problem is, I'd like to blame the white people. I'd mm-hmm. like to say it's them. But it's also us. Right. And so th- uh, the point I'm making is, if we're not going to police ourselves or be part of the solution, right. then the police always has to come from somewhere. Right. So that means that the white folks who are not part of the community will be policing your community right. if we're not willing to police ourselves. Right. So it's a catch-22, but I'm just saying that you know, and, and I'm not a I'm not a police. Uh, uh, no, you're not. You're, <laughs> I'm, I'm not someone who defends the police often. But I'm what I'm trying to say is that if we're not going to be part of the solution, then the solution has to come from elsewhere, and right. we may not like it. Right, and and but I think it also goes back to the trust issue you were talking about because oh, absolutely. you know what you're looking at is the current situation, which comes from generations of distrust of authority because absolutely. The authority has similar with women, somewhat differently, but um, again, I, I think it's the same. Yeah, it's it's somewhat the same. If there were more women police officers, we'd have less of these assaults. We'd have more empathy involved. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, women are are generally just in general more em- empathetic than well, men. I think that's being taught to the women. I think that's how we're being raised, rather than that women are generally that because I've known plenty of women who are as harsh, harsh. I mean, that's why women can go to the military. They can serve in the military because there are people who have, who are able to use that energy for, um, for certain outlets that are violent, that are cruel, you know, I I think. And if you look at a case, a famous case like the Holocaust, there were women guards who were equally cruel, maybe even worse. There were women, women at prison guards. Oh, absolutely. There were women, women who were at the, not just Gitmo, but the one that, that was... Oh, uh, uh, um, That had a case for cruel treatment. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, so I, I don't... Abu Ghraib. Abu Ghraib, yeah, exactly. And I think, I think we do men a disservice to say, oh, women are the empathetic ones, whereas you, you, know, you are a very empathetic person. I am, yeah. and that was taught to me by my mother. Yeah, but that was taught to you. Right. And it's not necessarily because your mother taught you, but, you know, it just so happens that your family was that dynamic. But if we only say, oh, women are the ones that are empathetic, then your mother wouldn't be able to teach it to you, right? Right. So I, I feel like men are capable. There are men who are capable of being empathetic. Sometimes it comes with experience. Sometimes it comes with maturity. So I tend to go back to blame more of, of the training of how there are certain things that are just not well known. Like, um, Yeah, but, but let, me, let me interject something here. I agree with you with that there are men that can be empathetic, but the problem is the system. Because if you throw five empathetic men mm-hmm. into a male-dominated, testosterone-driven locker room, mm-hmm. first of all, they're very much the minority Mm -hmm. and then they're going to be bullied pushed 
you know, into situations where they're like, oh, okay, I got to make a choice, right. you know, or I have to, I have to stand up for myself or I have to put myself in a situation where I, I become the fodder of jokes and, and, and right, all right, of that. Right. So the system itself overrides some of that as well. Yes, there's definitely <laughs> that pull because whichever culture you put yourself in will influence you, will pull you in a certain direction. But, you know, I found out that it takes something like 23% of a different influence to change an entire system. That's a minority. That's less than a quarter. And that's amazing. And I think you see that because you work in sports as well. I do. That having women reporters in those locker rooms has already changed the culture in some ways. It may not be perfect. I agree. But it's changed, and that's what, over the last 10, 15 years only, something like that? I, as a matter of fact, when I, I told you I'm a journalist by trade, and mm-hmm. when I started in journalism, there were very few women in journalism to that level. Mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, the person that I moved here for was, mm-hmm. was also a journalist, right. and that's how we met. And so it has changed. Mm -hmm. And you see the sideline reporters are almost exclusively women now. Oh, wow. So when they go to a football game and, you know, let's go to the sideline. It's almost, I'd say, 70% of women. Okay. And that's a great thing. Mm -hmm. That is great because it it keeps the players Mm -hmm. on notice. Right. You can't be doing inappropriate stuff when you got all these women hanging around. Right. Because then then somebody's going to find out. Okay, so so it's good. Mm-hmm. It, it has changed the culture in a positive manner, and I hope that it continues to change the culture yeah. in a positive manner. There was a player just a, a, like three or four days ago who said after the game, they were in the locker room, and he said something about that guy has female tendencies, and he was it was a, a insult. Mm-hmm. And Twitter just, they bashed him like instantly. <laughs> it was like instant. And so Twitter got on him, the sports community got on him. He apologized within like an hour. Right. And right. so he learned something from that. Right. Whether he changes, I don't know. He may never change. He's a knucklehead. But <laughs> he learned something. At least he won't say it again. Right. He might think it again, but he won't say it again. Right. That's one of my fears about that, driving this further underground. I... Personally, would like to tackle the more root causes of it rather than just saying behaviorally tisk tisk, and don't do it again in front of people. But when you're with your bros, you can do that, and that's problematic. But see, I agree with that. And there's an analogy that the current president has allowed these people to come to the surface. Yeah. Because you got to realize the same people who were alive during the spraying the African-American people with water hoses and mm-hmm. turning the dogs on them. Right. Those people were five, six, seven years old. They're still alive. Yeah, well, some you of them are I mean? in Congress. Right, they're still alive. <laughs> and so they still have some of these, mm-hmm. these same thoughts and tendencies. But the reality is we can't worry about trying to change them necessarily. We have to continue to change the next generation True. and the next generation and the next generation. That's the only way to things will change. It's over time. And it, it's unfortunate because I'm a black person that it probably will not change to the point I want right. in my lifetime. Right. But hopefully it'll change to that point in my daughter's lifetime. Yeah. You know, so we just have to keep pushing. Yeah. yeah. Keep pushing, keep telling them, hey, that's not okay. That's not okay. 
And yes, it drives some people underground, but some people are actually going to change also. Yeah, I, I feel like that's it. There's definitely a segment of population who are open to learning, whether or not they're deliberately learning or just through ex- harsh experiences, right? Like having a Twitter mob against you. <laughs> um, at the same time, you know, like I said, I want to tackle the root causes, and unfortunately, ignorance is a default in humanity. And it's something that we have to do, teach every generation. Well, the problem is ignorance is easy. Yeah. It's easy to be yes. ignorant because that means I don't have to learn anything. I don't right. have to put in any effort, you know, so. Right. Which so, is why 45 is so successful. Right. Because he's basically saying you can be lazy about your ignorance. You could think that it's okay and you can think that that is the right thing. Well, and the other thing, he gaslights the entire country. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, telling them, oh, you're crazy. Oh, that's not real. That's fake. That's a, yeah, and, so, and, and I don't understand why people can see it and still fall for it. Because that's the part I don't understand. It's convenient for them because it feeds into their narrative. I agree with that, but some of them don't come in with a narrative. Let's say you come in with a blank slate. And you see this person keep telling you lies that we all know are lies. We see them. He'll actually have a clip and then we'll have a play a clip from four or five years ago where he said the exact opposite thing. So we know that they are lies and they still just don't. They're just like, oh, I believe it. I'm like. But I think we underestimate the pull, the weight of celebrity status. And he is a celebrity. Agreed. And I, I agree. I so I'm going to bring the Kobe Bryant case up, and I apologize because I know it's painful because he just passed. At the same time, I don't know if you heard, but like a female Washington Post reporter posted that three-year-old Daily Beast article on the About the Colorado. Yeah, detailing right. the case, yes. like both sides. And she was suspended after getting 10,000 Death threats. Uh, yeah, not just death threats, but also a physical harm uh, threats of that. And people don't even want to hear the other side. And that's scary. And I saw a parallel between the two cases, right? Because at the same time, GOP is blocking witnesses. Right. Now, I'm not suggesting that Kobe Bryant is an angel. I'm suggesting her crime, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. was the timing. If she had said this and he was not gone, all of this would have gone away. He's still beloved, so he's, she still would have gotten some, you know, a lot oh, of, yeah. you know, well, flack. See, but she would not have gotten suspended because it's not a made-up story. She didn't make it up. She didn't yeah. write the story. Yeah. So she doesn't deserve any shrapnel for that. Right. But it's the timing. It's like saying, okay, this guy just died in a tragic accident. Let me pile on. Right. And that's the problem. It's not, it's not what she wrote or what she, you know, tweeted. It's the timing. But the problem with the timing is, first of all, has any woman been asked, is this the right time to assault you? No, but that's, I think your, your, your point is different from my point. Because I'm not, I'm not suggesting she shouldn't have brought this up. I'm just suggesting a day or two after that, after he just passed in a tragic accident, is probably not the best time to do it. It's like if, let's say, Bill Clinton were to pass tomorrow by some crazy accident, you don't say, okay, let me write everything about... Actually, they do. 
They do. Every time a president passes, they. But it's a little blurb. You don't. You don't. You don't put his whole story on blast. A good. A good story would tell you both the. Okay, you, you know, as a journalist, but she didn't do that. Sorry, you know, as a journalist, you do a chunk of the good thing, and you know, the placement of where you put the negative right. thing is very important in right. terms of if it gets the attention it needs. I agree, but and you, and if you notice, a lot of news outlets, even the ones that were glorifying him, brought those things up. Oh, he was, he was yeah, but in the middle and maybe a very small mention, it's very like. Very awkwardly dipping a toe in there. I and agree. That's the problem because that allows people to ignore it. And she did not actually write a story; she just linked to a story、right. for somebody to get suspended over linking to a true story. Is self censorship? It's basically doing the administration's job for themselves. I'm not suggesting she should have gotten suspended. What I am suggesting is. What you said is is important. If there would have been both sides,、mm-hmm. then it would have been a little better received. Right, but I feel like even now, a week later, there's still both sides are not represented equally.、Um, well, the feelings are so raw, and、yeah. and the other thing is, remember the story is like what. Twelve, thirteen years old. No, no, it, not not the story of the Daily Beast, but、oh, I'm talking about the actual. Two thousand three. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so the incident is so old. Well, it's not the incident because well, you are from a community where you know you, you observe or maybe experience for yourself. I don't know your exact history of police brutality. It doesn't matter how old it is, right? Because you still feel it. I agree with that. And so the same thing with what this victim. Went through because one of the things that like got to me reading the Daily Beast article because I knew about the case but I didn't know the details so I wanted to find out that I googled. I actually it. read it. Yeah, I googled it and I、right. read it and I was like, oh my god! And the thing that really got to me, and I think that many survivors probably got to them as well, is the fact that him and his defense team completely just dragged her life in the mud so that she felt. I don't. We don't know how she felt, but my imagine obviously is that she felt like she couldn't take the risk because she previously had been suffering from depression. So can you imagine somebody who suffered through depression, who has had a suicide attempt, having to go through not only the assault but having your life completely dragged through the mud? And that's what that <laughs> listen, happens often.、Actually. Yeah, and also exactly what the African American community feels all the time, except the difference is the victims tend to be dead. So they cannot speak for themselves. Right.、Uh, whereas the women are being silenced. So even if they want to speak, they cannot speak. Right. Well, this is is it's very delicate. It's, it is. It's, it's, and it's not ideal. The、no. timing wasn't ideal. The suspension was probably not warranted. Yeah.、Um, well, that's why she got reinstated because the Washington Post has its own like a committee that reviews these things, and and they basically came out for her. Right. And so she subsequently got reinstated. I don't know if she got the protection. Yeah, that's the problem. Yeah. Because whether she's reinstated is is the smaller story. Right. The bigger story is there's a legion of people who are nuts who will continue to bombard her with terrible Twitter and emails and 
someone will find her address. Yeah. All those kinds of things because people are just nuts. They're they're yeah. they're out of their minds. Yeah, and and this like impersonal nature of social media allows people to just do whatever. Like I right. also maybe even around the same time. No, later because I had to post the episode last Sunday, and I didn't find out until a few hours later. But I also posted that daily. Beast article, and I, I got fortunately not death threats, but somebody was just like cursing me the hell out, and right. I was just like, I, at first I actually cried over the reaction, just the entire package of reaction. Right. Seeing journalists that I really respect and、uh, love, even who normally seem unbiased, to solely tweet about. The death solely tweet about all the good things that he's done and not talk about the other things. You can see I'm still getting emotional over、right. it. To not understand how that feeds into the system of silencing women,、mm-hmm. that's the problem. And and also to tie into what's happening in D.C. because there is right now this effort. Uh, I mean, they already did, right? They they refuse to call witnesses despite knowing that there are witnesses. Right. So. Oh, the only witness they really want to call is the whistleblower, so they can find out who it is. Yeah,、That's、exactly. The and also the Biden.、Um, oh yeah, and Hunter Biden. Yeah, because <laughs> they basically wanted to continue what Trump wanted to do, which is to smear the Biden. Right. And so. Just the linking, because I feel like a lot of people, when you dislike someone, you could see clearly, or even being against that person you don't like. Right. But when you like someone, when you really like someone, you blind you yourself. You ignore stuff. Yeah, and that's yeah. why I feel like the Kobe case actually helps a larger chunk of the public understand the persistence of the Trump base. I agree with that to a degree, but let me、uh, push back just a bit. Sure. One of the most beloved people on the planet was Bill Cosby,、mm-hmm. and for a long time, people defended him. Right. And and I was one of them. I was like, well, we don't know all the information.、Mm-hmm. Blah blah blah. I'm not going to say he didn't do it, but I'll defend his rights since we don't know the information. But as the information came out, people started distancing themselves. Like, oh wait, hold it. Yeah, but this seems like he's. He did it. It took so, a long time. It、though. did take a long time. And we're talking about dozens of women. I, right. It took forty women for. I think it was somewhere around forty. It ended up being, but.、Um, and race also played an issue, partly because of our underlying problems with race that we've never addressed. Most of his victims were white. Yes. And I think it's just layers of problems, not just sexism, but also racism, because. And elitism. Yeah, and because he was one of the very few African American men who made it, and that was one of the reasons many of the women did not want to come out against him because they knew how hard it was for that to happen. Right. And that became a silencing tool. Can you imagine that? So there's a lot of layers of feelings. Speaking of layers of feelings, I chose my poem, "The Disappearing Act," because like your poem. It starts out about something that we usually associate with fun and good times, but、mm-hmm. um, it talks about something much more painful, unfortunately, similar to yours. So I'm going to read that now. The disappearing act. Did I tell you that I'm studying to be a magician? My best trick is a disappearing act. 
Don't you want to be a volunteer? Don't you want to know what it's like to evaporate into sunlight or disappear into the night? Why, you may ask, I have to thank you for the inspiration when you kept trying to convince me that what I know to be true are lies, I knew you wanted some magic in your lives. Since I'm also a grantor of wishes, I am here to help your world disappear. Scrub clean that pretty veneer so it will show the ugliness that lies underneath. You called for a magician, and I'm here to answer your prayers, because I know you are, like me, tired of the lies, tired of weaving new coverlets that inadequately hide all the dirty secrets that keep breeding new ones. You want the world to know, as much as I do, who you really are, the wrongs you've done, the bodies you've been hiding, the souls you've crushed. Very good, very good. I, I know many people who disappear mm. into the background because they don't want to be in the forefront because it makes them nervous. Mm. And so uh, when I read this poem, my first thought was, am I the one disappearing or am I the one who doesn't want to disappear and mm. wants to stay in the foreground, but others are making me disappear? Right. Because... As a minority in Arizona, mm -hmm. sometimes it feels like we can just disappear. Right. And people would be fine with that. Right. Or people aren't making you disappear. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think people see past, mm -hmm. see past us often. But I also recognize that sometimes I would like to be invisible and I'm not. Mm. What I mean by that is, like, if I walk into a store and I just want to shop, Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'd like to be invisible because right. often I feel eyes on me. Right. You know right. what I mean? And so right. I don't necessarily like that. I was one time, I was in, um, <laughs> speaking of that, I was actually in the Scottsdale Mall one time. I was oh. wearing a three-piece suit. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I was looking pretty damn good. Mm -hmm. And I was walking through the mall and I walked into a store that sold like, I don't know, like $10 things. Mm-hmm. And they, a person followed me around the store. I was wearing a three-piece suit. Yeah. And they followed Clearly me around. Clearly a disguise. The, Clearly a disguise. And they followed me around the <laughs> store like I was going to pick up and steal one of these $10 trinkets they were selling. And I just, I turned around and I said, is there a reason you're following me? And she, oh. She turned around, <laughs> act like she wasn't following me. And I said, you know, I can see you, right? You know I can see you. Just like you can see me, I can see you. So when I went down that aisle, you were behind me. And then I went down that aisle, and you were behind me. Now I'm in this aisle, and you're behind me. It kind of feels like you're following me around this store. Mm -hmm. And she's like, oh, I would never. I said, oh, okay. So then I, I picked something up intentionally, mm -hmm. and I walked to the next aisle, and I put it down. And then I walked out. Mm. And I just see her. She was she was just watching me walk out. I just turned around and I gave her a shoulder shrug and kept walking. And I was like, I want to be invisible at this point. I just mm -hmm. want to walk around the store and, and not be bothered. And I could not do it. Right, right. <laughs> so when I read this poem, my, my first reaction was, is she trying to disappear or is the other people, you know, making it difficult for her to disappear? Right, right. And so uh, that, was, that was what went through my mind when I read it the first time. Yeah. So... 
Well, it gave me a feeling, so that makes it a good oh, poem. Oh, good. Thank you. And me, too. I felt the same with your poems. It's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's very tough to talk about both of our poems because, again, there's a lot of gaslighting involved. I talk about it. I sort of reference it. And I find that in my interactions with people in life, I'm one of those people who I don't know what is it about me that act like a mirror to other people. Mm. And I reflect back what they are underneath. That's um, a good skill to have, actually. Yeah, people hate it. People, I, I think it's great. Very few people will think it's great, <laughs> so I'm glad you think it's great. Well, but, that's because people have things to hide. I don't have things to hide. Right, right. People think, oh, I'm this way, but our interactions sometimes let them know, actually, no, this is what you are deep right. down. And so even though, yes, as a victim of assault, as a survivor of assault, what I went through definitely made me feel like, you know, you always feel undermined, like your experience, right. because you're not being seen as a full human being, as an individual, but as a, a representative of a larger misconception. Right. A walking criminal. Yeah, exactly. And so when you're a survivor of assault, it feels the same because you feel like you're not worthy because if you were worthy, they wouldn't do that to you. So there is that sense of being disappeared, being wiped off. And also if there's collusion involved, there's ostracization involved. Again, there's that sense of I'm being silenced, I'm being erased because they don't want to hear. They don't want to see the victims. They don't want to see the victims walking among them because... They want to think their world is perfect because it's not affected them personally. And they want to keep this perfect veneer. So in a sense, my poem is not so much about my disappearing, more about me wanting to say, well, I have disability. No, you're going to look at it. And I want to make this pretense go away. Obviously, I was not saying it to them in person. I was just writing something that I know that they wouldn't even allow me to say to them. Mm. That's that's powerful because it gives a, per, a different perspective mm -hmm. than someone would come in with. Mm -hmm. And uh, anytime you can change someone's perspective, especially with a poem, then you're doing a, a good job. Yeah. And I tell that, you know, I, I teach in the city of Mesa. And one of the things I teach the kids, I teach poetry, mm -hmm. is your job is not necessarily to make them change. Right. Your job is to make them think about changing. Yes. You can't make someone change. No, we can't. But you can make them go, oh, I never thought of that. Right. Maybe I right. should change. Right. And I tell the kids all the time, if you do that effectively, mm -hmm. you are a really good poet. Mm -hmm. And if you can do it and someone actually changes, then you're a phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What you want to be is a good poet. And if you become a phenomenon, that's awesome. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. We always want to challenge the way other people think. As human beings, our major challenge in life is communicating who we are, what we want to the other person or to the other people that we're interacting with. Right. And often there's always this miscommunication because... Our definition of a word is always slightly different than other people's definition of oh, the yeah. same word. And Definitely. So, yes. And as poets, you know, that's what we do. We are wordsmiths. We play with words. And to want to have the effect, both of our poems, to want to get people to think 
slightly differently, not only using the image of something that people usually associate with fun and happiness, like magic or candy, right? but to use that as an entry into something that's not talked about enough, that's mm. not being explored enough. Absolutely. Yeah. And also, one of the reasons why I wrote the poem was it I had a feeling. Mm-hmm. So when I found out, I had a tangible feeling. Mm-hmm. And for me to have a tangible feeling about someone I hadn't seen in 25 years mm-hmm. meant that it would touch someone else right. if I did it effectively. Right. One of the things that I uh, like about this poem, it's very difficult to do, but I like mm-hmm. to perform it because the turn freaks people out. Yeah. So I remember I was, I was at ASU one time, and I was doing this poem in a room full of people. It was probably mm-hmm. about 200 people in the room. Mm-hmm. And I told the professor, I said, look, I'm going to do this poem mm-hmm. that is going to be controversial. Mm-hmm. I'll just say controversial. <laughs> and he's like, he's like, okay. He and I have a personal relationship. Right, so right. he was just like, okay, I mean, I trust you. Go ahead, do what you got to do. Right. I said, okay, but this is what I want from you before I do it. I want you to watch the reaction of the audience. Mm-hmm. That's your only job. That's what I want. Mm-hmm. And he's like, he's like, okay, no problem. So I do the poem. I get to the turn, and there's an audible gasp in mm-hmm. the room. These are all 18, 19, 20-year-old people. Yeah. There's an audible <gasps> So I get through the poem. I finish it, and I, I walk up to, to the professor, and he says, you got him. And I was like, well, what do you mean? He goes, you heard it just like I did. And I, <laughs> and I said, I said, I did. But the point is, if you make it seem like you're going one direction Man. and then you change in another direction and make a point, the gasp is automatic. It's, it's not even something they think about. It's just what they do. Right. And that's what the point is of the poem, to get people to understand that these things happen even in the sweetest of stories. Right. There can be a turn into a horror story. Right. And so getting people to realize that those things actually happen on the planet Earth and too often. Is, is the point of the poem. Mm-hmm. So I love the fact that you have this magician and mm-hmm. this disappearing act, and then you turn it into something else because I call it a flip poem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's I, a head fake. It's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a flip poem because I, you know, I get you to go one way and then I go the other way. I flip it on you, and you're right. like, "Whoa!" I got in my book. I have about six or seven flip poems, mm-hmm. but most of them are um, in different comedic ways. Right. right. This one wasn't meant to be comedic, but in yeah. the, you know, I have a couple that are comedic. Yeah. That are, that are flips. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I realize that I tend to write things about. What seems to be one thing, but is actually another. Oh, yeah, and that's effective. It's an effective way to tell a story. Yeah. It is. It's an effective way to tell a story, but it has to be done well. Yeah. If you don't do it well, people are just confused at the end. Right, right, right. But I think a lot of poetry can be confusing because it's uh, it's very personal. personal. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. And, and another thing that I, another lesson that I teach the students is write for you. Mm-hmm. Write for you because regardless of who you write for, if you could write for a person sitting right in front of you, right. read the poem to them mm-hmm. and they will not get what you're trying to say. No. Yeah. So 
you, you need to write for you right. and please yourself with whatever you're yeah. writing. And then other people will get different bits out of it from whatever their perspective is. Right. Because everyone comes in with their own perspective. Right. And they're going to pick and choose and piggyback on the things that relate to them right. and that they can relate to. Yeah, that's the nature of art, isn't it? I mean, it, it really is. Yeah. It really is because it, it's the same in music. It's the same in, in visual arts. It's the yeah. same in uh, movie, storytelling. Yeah. All the, It's all the same. The idea is write from your perspective mm-hmm. and hope that if you're trying to tell a, a specific story, right. that someone in the audience will understand it. You can't expect everyone to understand no, it. No, no. So you just want someone to get what you're trying to say. Yeah. And I've had people come up to me and be like, uh, you know, in tears. That story really moved me because I understand, you know, my mm-hmm, my mm-hmm. sister or my whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and I just say, you know what? You are who I wrote that for. Mm-hmm. Whoever is touched by the poem itself mm-hmm. is the person it is written for. Yeah, yeah. You know, and if it doesn't touch you, then it's not written for you. Right. Exactly. You know what I mean? So, exactly. You know, if if I'm in a room of of a hundred people and I only touch one person, that's one more person than was touched before. Right. right. So, yeah, I'm okay with that. Yeah, I, I think part of being an artist who creates, we have to accept that that we're not going to be able to relate to everyone. If we are able to do that, that means our work is so generic that it doesn't really right. matter. At the same time, as you said, it's very important to write our voice, to express ourselves. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I started the podcast. One is to enlighten the public a little bit about why we write particular poems, but also to let the public know poetry is a a viable tool that you can use to express yourself. And it's a beautiful tool that you can maybe use words to paint pictures to get at feelings that maybe prose doesn't allow you to do. Right. So in closing, I always want to ask uh, where people can see you read and also how they can follow you. That following question is always the difficult one because I have multiple uh, social medias, but I never remember the names. It's okay. Um, It's okay. um, You can send me the links. Where they can find me, they can always find me at Confessions, Mm -hmm. which is a second Friday and fourth Friday. I will always be there. At Concierge. Um, at Concierge, uh, which is downtown 1140 East Washington, mm-hmm. uh, downtown Phoenix. I will always read on the open mic night, and I will read on the features night if necessary. Mm-hmm. They can also find me at Infuse on second Sundays. Mm-hmm. That is at uh, Phoenix Art Center. Mm-hmm. I've been the DJ for the last six years, mm-hmm. and I've been involved for nine years. Mm-hmm. So... So it's a lot of fun. It's a yeah. lot of fun. I like that. Also, yeah. I like that audience also, mm-hmm. but it is a different audience. Very than, different audience. Than, yeah. than what we're getting yeah. at concierge. Yeah. I have a soon-to-be six-year-old, uh, <laughs> so I don't do as much as I used to do mm-hmm. because I am a single father. Mm-hmm. She's more important than most things. Right. So I won't commit to a whole lot. My social media platforms. On Facebook, I am Robert Flipside Daniels. Okay. That is my government name. It, are um, there any dots in between, or is it nope. one, one thing? Okay. Just uh, flip side is one word. Okay. So Robert Flipside Daniels. I have a Twitter account that I never use, <laughs> <laughs> and that is uh, Flipside Poetry. Okay. I have an Instagram, which is Flipside underscore Poet. Okay. And I also have a second Instagram, which is uh, Confessions at Concierge. 
Oh, I just, okay, yeah, that's just, a new one. Yeah, I just opened that Ooh. one uh, a couple <laughs> weeks ago. Now I know all of them. Thank you very much for this. I'm so glad we did this. Thank you, Imogen. This is fun, and I always enjoy seeing you. So, Thank you. It's a pleasure. You can follow us at poetsandmuses.com and on social media via Instagram, Twitter, as well as SoundCloud under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or on the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. I'm your host, Imogen Ray. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.